If you would this morning, let's turn to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. We've been looking at the book of Mark for about a year and a half now, getting closer to two years actually. And uh, we've seen how that uh, Mark looks at Jesus as a suffering servant concerned uh, much more with his works than his words. However, I will say this, this chapter 13 is the longest discourse from Jesus in the book of Mark. And we spent the last chapter and a half in the temple, going back and forth between Jesus and the Jewish authorities, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the scribes. And uh, they kept asking him a series of questions to try to trap him, to try to trip him up. Uh, But of course, no man ever spake like this man. And, you know, when you argue with Jesus, you end up looking like a fool. And that's what happened. And he did ask them one question. He turned it around and he quoted Psalm 110 and verse 1, which as we saw is the most quoted verse in all of Scripture. When David said that the Lord... Said unto my Lord, sit on my right hand until I make thy enemies thy footstool. And so his question to them was, why would David call his son Lord? His son being the coming Messiah, the coming King. And of course Jesus was speaking of himself and he basically said, why would David call me Lord? And then why would God ask me to sit on his right hand and rule with him? Well, the simple answer is because he's not just an earthly king, he's God. Jesus is God incarnate. And then last week we looked specifically how Jesus pretty much eviscerated the Pharisees. I mean, just destroyed them because He, he exposed their outward show of religion, the, the clothes they wore and the long prayers they prayed and all these pious things they did. And then they secretly devour widows' houses. And then He pointed to a poor little widow who put two measly mites, which is less than one cent in our currency, when He make the equivalent of a penny, and it, the point he was making wasn't about the widow's giving. It was about her destitution. It was about her poverty. And they were the reason for it. And so I'm sure that made him happy. But that's where we finish chapter 13 and where we pick up in chapter 14. Uh, Jesus and the disciples are actually exiting uh, the temple here. And today, before I even read our text... Uh, I want to point out the fact that there is a strong theme of eschatology in Mark 13. That's simply the study of the end times or the study of last things. And, you know, just as a disclaimer about where we stand and where I stand, uh, I fully believe in a pre-tribulation rapture of the church and a pre-millennial return of Christ. And what that simply means is is the next thing that we are expecting is for the Lord Jesus Christ to call out or to rapture out His church, His people from the world. We go up to meet Him in the clouds. It's very important to understand there's a difference between the rapture of the church where we go up to Him and the second coming of Christ where He comes down to earth to reign. And... uh, So we're waiting on that pre-tribulation rapture. And meanwhile, when we go up to heaven on the earth, there's going to be a period of seven years of great judgment. God is going to pour out His wrath in a way that has never been seen in this world. Uh, I mean, it's just going to be unbelievable. I'm glad I'm not going to be here. 
the, the world is going to be ruled by a man we call the Antichrist under the power and possession of Satan. The first three and a half years, he's going to bring order and peace to a chaotic world. But at the end of the three and a half years, he's going to break the peace treaty with Israel and everything's just going to break loose. And so we believe that. I, I believe I could defend that. But I will say this. I think in recent years, we've taken eschatology to a level that really maybe we shouldn't. And, and the reason I say this is because I, I can promise you this one thing. Everybody is going to be wrong about something when it comes to the end times. We're, listen, we're going to see it for ourselves. And there's going to be things happen and come to pass. And we're like, man, I called it. I knew it. It was right there. We're high-fiving. Yeah. And then there's going to be some things where we're like, I didn't see that one coming. Well, and then there's another group on the other side having going, yeah, we got that one, you know. So we, and I say that we, we can't make this a dogmatic matter of fellowship with other believers. We can be convinced about where we stand. We can be confident. But, you know, even our Baptist forefathers didn't make a huge, huge deal out of it. And honestly, our Baptist forefathers would have been, most of them were post-mill. And so uh, our, the, the pre-trib position is, is about 120 years old. And people say, well, it was never taught in history. It can't be true. And most of the time, the vast majority of the time, I would agree with that statement. The reason I think that eschatology is different is because as we get closer to that day, there's going to be some things that we see more clearly than we did 2,000 years ago. So yes, it would just be natural that we would understand some things better today looking back than we would then looking forward. And so that's, that's where we're at on that. That being said, as far as Mark chapter 13 goes, you'll get confused if you try to find the rapture of the church in there. It's not in Mark 13. And you have to understand that when Jesus is talking to the Jews about last things, He's going to be talking about His second coming because that's what will affect them. And so that's, we need to make that distinction. We, and we need, so we need to give grace to those that maybe haven't come to these same conclusions. I, I've got some dear friends that love the Lord that probably would disagree with me about these things, and that's okay. Um, as far as Mark 13 is concerned, man, this is one of the most misinterpreted chapters one of the most misunderstood texts in all of the Bible. And so what I really want to do is over the next two, three, maybe even four weeks, I just want to walk through this text line upon line, verse upon verse, and I want us to be able to dissect and understand what Jesus is talking about. We're going to take our time here. But just kind of some rules of engagement here. I think it's important to understand that there's a few different interpretations, a few different stances or slants that people read this text from. Uh, the first slant is known as the preterist view. What that means, it's simply a, it's a purely historical way at looking at this text. When they read this text, the preterist sees everything in the past. Everything has already happened. It only applied to the Jews. It has nothing to do with us today. Then you have the full-blown dispensationalist view. And when they read this text, almost everything they see is future tense. And almost everything here applies directly to us. But I believe that the correct biblical interpretation sees both the past and the future within the context. There's some overlap here. And if we can't dissect it, we're not going to be able to make any sense out of what's being said here. Now, Christ's prophecy here has somewhat of a dual meaning. 
We have to let the context dictate what he's talking about. When we study this text, we need to ask, who exactly is Jesus referring to? What exactly is in the past? What is prophetic and in the future? And how can this apply to us today? We're going to try to answer those questions as we go through this. And so with that in mind, with those rules of engagement laid out, let's read through the first 13 verses of the book of Mark. And just full disclosure, as we read this, I think they'll help you understand this. What we deal with today and what we're going to see in the first 13 verses, I would take the preterist position. Everything that we're going to read in these first 13 verses Even though we can find some practical application, he's referring to the Jews. He's talking to the disciples, and these events have already happened. Now, we will see some future prophecies in this chapter. Don't get me wrong. But the first 13 verses are clearly something he was mentioning specifically to the disciples about the Jews. And we can see in history it's already happened. So let's read this. Verse 1, let's read the Word of God together. Uh, And as he went out of the temple... One of his disciples saith unto him, Master, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answering said unto him, Seest thou these great buildings? There shall not be one stone left upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he said upon the Mount of Olives over against the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign when all these things shall be fulfilled? And Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed lest any man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And when ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, be ye not troubled, for such things must needs be. But the end shall not be yet. For nations shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there shall be earthquakes in divers places, and there shall be famines and troubles. These are the beginning of sorrows. But take heed to yourselves, for they shall deliver you up to councils. And in the synagogues you shall be beaten. And you shall be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them. And the gospel must first be published among all nations. But when they shall lead you and deliver you up, take no thought beforehand what you shall speak, neither do you premeditate, but whatsoever shall be given you in that hour, that speak ye. For it is not ye that speak, but the Holy Ghost. Now the brother shall betray the brother to death, and the father the son, and children shall rise up against their parents, and shall cause them to be put to death. And you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that shall endure to the end... The same shall be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We just worship you today. And God, I just pray that you would just help me, give me clarity of thought. I pray that we would leave here with a better understanding of your word. God, that I would not say anything less than the scriptures say, but that I wouldn't say any more than the scriptures say. And God, I pray that our minds would not be on a rescue, Lord. Uh, But Lord, our minds would be on you and service to you despite what may come. I pray that you empty me of sin and self, fill me your Holy Spirit. Meet us where we are today, Lord. If there's anybody that needs to be saved, I pray you would save them. Speak to their heart that they would repent and trust the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive and save them from their sin. God, go with us today and we'll thank you and praise you for it. In Christ's name, amen. So, we're looking today at the thought of the end is near, or is it? The end is near, 
Or is it? This is going to be part one of probably a three or four part study, I would think. But um, when we look at this, we need to ask the question, what does this text actually teach us about the end times and the return of the Lord? Well, the first thing that I want you to notice and I want you to see here is the destruction of the temple. Now, this is, this is clear here. This is undeniable. It cannot be argued. We see the destruction of the temple prophesied here by Jesus. Let's look at the first two verses. And as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples saith unto him, Master, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answering said unto him, See thou these great buildings? There shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. This is clearly a prophecy of the destruction of the temple. Now, I really want to put you in the mindset of the disciples. Not only the mindset of the disciples, but also of the Jews. The temple was the center of everything. It was their life. In their minds, it was the place where God dwelled. It was the place where the Ark of the Covenant was. And uh, I mean, really, it was just the center of everything. And even as far as its architecture, it was one of the wonders of the ancient world. Archaeologists have found stones from the temple walls that were over 40 feet in length, 11 feet tall and 14 feet deep and weighed over a million pounds. One stone. It was inlaid with gold. I mean, it was, it would just, if you saw it, it would just take your breath away. And even as they're walking out, I mean, certainly the disciples had seen the temple hundreds of times, but as they're walking with Jesus, they, they looked at Jesus and said, wow, what a, what a building, what a, what a wonder of the world. And I mean, and Jesus said, yeah, it is great. See those great buildings? There's coming a day where not one stone is going to be laid upon another because they're going to be torn down. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, and to the Jews, this was such a big deal. And if you think about Jesus pronouncing judgment on the temple, He had already done this. Remember the withering of the fig tree? And how we talk about how that typified the judgment of Israel and its religious system? Well, it culminates, it comes to fruition in the destruction of the temple. Now, historically, the destruction of the temple happened in A.D. 70, about 40 years after Christ made this statement. Uh, there was a Jewish rebellion against the Romans that started in A.D. 66, and Titus, their general, came in A.D. 70, and he tore the temple apart. Not one stone was left upon it. He tore it all the way down to the footings. And so the Jews lost their temple, and they haven't had a temple in 2,000 years. They haven't. In fact, um, when we think about Jerusalem, you think about the golden dome with the rock, Right? Well, that's actually a Muslim mosque. It's the Mosque of Omar. It's the third holiest site to Muslims, and it's sitting right on the old side of the temple, right there where it used to be. I'm sure that made the Jews really happy. But so we see very clearly that Jesus is speaking of something very specific to the time of the disciples, and it happened within their lifetime. That's why he's giving them instructions on this. So we see that. That's, that's not to be argued. So I want to go ahead and move to point two this morning. Uh, When we talk about the end times and what this text says about it, uh, not only about the destruction of the temple, but I want you to know about the disciples' mistake. And this this is really important. I'm going to park it here for a little bit. The disciples made a mistake here. Look at verse three. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, this is known as the Olivet Discourse. 
As they sat upon the Mount of Olives overlooking the temple, which is what this means, over against the temple. They were on the mountain looking down at the temple. Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign when all these things shall be fulfilled? And so they asked Jesus specifically about the destruction of the temple and when that would take place. But they also indicated a deeper concern. And you don't have to turn here, but just maybe jot this down and look at it later. But in Matthew's gospel of this same passage, uh, Matthew's gospel indicates that they also ask about Christ's coming and as well as about the end of the world. When would the end of the age or the end of the world be? And I find it interesting because here's the mistake that the disciples made. It's a mistake that we cannot afford to make. And we, uh, there's a lot of people who make this mistake all the time. I'm as guilty as any. But they associated the destruction of the temple with the end of the world. And what this means is they were associating the end of their world with the end of the world. They were associating the, because, hey, the destruction of the temple, that's got to be the end of the world. It's the center of Jewish life. It's the center of Jewish worship. It's the place where God dwells. If that goes away, it must mean the end of the world. So what they were saying is, by the end of their world, it must mean, oh, the world is coming to an end. And we do the same thing. We do the same thing. And this is why I don't like the idea, and I'm sure you've heard it, we might have said it, Uh, You've heard it said that we can take a a Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other and we can get an idea of where we are on the prophetic calendar. I'll tell you why I don't like that line of thinking. There's two reasons. Number one, the reason I don't like this, because everybody in every time in history did that. They took what was going on in their time in history in their little world and they took it to the Scriptures and said, this is what this must mean. You can go read the Reformers. And they thought that the Pope was the, with a capital T, the Antichrist. If you want something funny to read, go back and find some things that Martin Luther said about the Pope. Now, is the Pope acting off the spirit of Antichrist? Absolutely. Is the things that he teaches straight out of hell? You better believe it. But he is not the Antichrist. So they took what was happening in their point of history and read it in Scripture. And the problem with taking a Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other is that we're going to take what that newspaper said and read that into the Scripture instead of just believing what the Scripture says and just applying it to everyday life. We've got to be careful about doing that. Now, I'm fixing to probably really blow your mind with what I'm fixing to say. While the Bible does have a good bit to say about the coming of Christ... It has a lot to say about the judgments and the millennial kingdom and things of that nature. The Bible does not say nearly as much about the signs of His coming as most of us have been led to believe. It just doesn't. It's just not there. And we're fixing to see that from this text. Uh, When it comes to uh, signs of the end times, it sells a lot of books. When it comes to prophecy conferences, they're going to fill up a lot of seats and sell a lot of tickets But those things usually don't stay faithful to the text of Scripture. They just don't. There's a lot of interest in it. It attracts a crowd. But you're going to have a hard time making it fit what the Bible actually says. And any time that I go outside at night 
and I see a sure enough full moon or an off-color moon, I look up at that full moon and I say to myself, well, there's two things that are happening somewhere in the world tonight. The first one is the werewolves are on the prowl, and the second one is John Hagee's writing a new book about the end times. <laughs> and I was, joking about, I was joking about the first one, just so you know. Every time a weird moon comes out, that man's writing a new book about when the end times are coming. He's been wrong for the first 62 books he's written on the subject. He's got, John Hagee has an abhorrent eschatology. It's horrible. But that's what we do. And it, listen, if we're not careful, and if you don't get this, you, you miss everything. Don't make the mistake that they did. And look around at everything going on in our little world and means it, it, it's the end of the world. Don't make that mistake. And if we're not careful, every time something crazy happens in Washington, we're going to think it's in the world. If you watch Fox News for more than five minutes, you're going to be looking out the window for Jesus to come. If we're not careful, every time a 10-year-old kid somewhere in the Middle East shoots off a bottle rocket, we're going to think that it's the end. We can't do that. And if we do, we're missing everything that Jesus is actually saying here. Listen, Jesus is not that concerned about the wind. He's not. He's much more concerned with us being faithful until the end. Whether it be our death or whether it be the actual end, He's not concerned about the wind. He's not. And if we're looking at specific end times or signs of the end times, you could probably cut it down to just two. And they're not that easy to gauge if we're honest with it. The first one is that the gospel must be published in all nations. We find that in verse 10 of our text. But uh, he says in verse 10, And the gospel must first be published among all nations. But, in, but here's the thing. This is where it kind of gets a, a little bit muddy here. Um, when the Lord says nations, does he mean physical countries? Or does he mean ethnic groups of people? This is very important because according to the Joshua Project, every political nation in the world has been reached with the gospel. But... There are still over 17,000 unreached people groups. Now, the word nations here in the Greek, it comes from the word ethnos, and it can mean a tribe or people group. And so has the gospel reached every single ethnic people group? No. Has it reached every political nation? Yes. So has this been accomplished? I don't know. And you don't either. You say, well, Brother Brandon, you ought to sound more confident. Listen, I want to speak where the Bible speaks, and I want to be silent where the Bible is silent. And I just told you the factors that make this somewhat confusing. The second sign of the end coming, if you want, or the end times, if you want to call it that, is the great falling away among the professed church. We find this in 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 3. Now, this is certainly true in America. The professing church is going down a slippery slope at a thousand miles an hour. Of this we can agree. But there's other parts of the world right now that are seeing revivals like they've never seen before. The Philippines are on fire right now. They can't even baptize them fast enough. And by the way, if, we have this, if we're consumed by this doom and gloom mentality, then it's probably going to negatively affect our evangelism. Well, 
It's the end anyway. We're in late in the fourth quarter. It's only going to get worse. Friend, God could flip a switch and give us a revival of the likes that this nation has never seen before. And then we're not going to be talking about a great falling away anymore. And if there's one problem I have with the pre-tribulation crowd and the, the uh, post-mill people are quick to remind us of this, it's they do have that mentality. It doesn't matter. We're, hey, it's the end. Nobody's going to listen. We're in Laodicea. It's the, the time that, where the church makes God sick. We just, let's just sit here on our laurels and wait. No pun intended. <laughs> listen, folks, we need to get over that thinking right. really quick. Like yesterday. Get rid of it. It doesn't have a place in the Scriptures and it shouldn't have a place in our hearts or in the way in which we live our life. And I'll say this, a lot of the signs that people try to gauge the end of the world by aren't signs at all. This text is going to be perfect proof of that. Uh, let's, let's go ahead and read this. This, this verses 5-13 through 13 is one of the most misinterpreted parts of the Bible. And in fact, we get it so bad most of the time that we actually interpret or mean the exact opposite of what Jesus is saying here. The exact opposite. We couldn't miss it any further. So let's read it together. And remember that he's talking to the disciples here about specific things that would take place in their life. And Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed lest any man deceive you. For many shall come in my name saying, I am Christ and shall deceive many. And when you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, be you not troubled, for such things must need be. But the end shall not be yet. You need to take a highlighter, pen, whatever. Uh, The end shall not be yet. You need to circle, highlight, underline, and put a little asterisk around that little statement right there. Because what he is telling his disciples is, there's bad times coming. There's going to be wars. There was. Rome came and obliterated Jerusalem and scattered the entire Jewish race across the whole world because they ran for their lives. It really happened. It was a horrible time. That's what he's warning them about. And when it comes to these wars and rumors of wars, he said these things must need be, but the end is not yet. In other words, this is not a sign of the end times. This is not a sign of the last days. I mean, has there ever been a time in human history... I mean, you can read about war in the early chapters of Genesis, and you could read about it, war in the last chapters of Revelation. Has there ever been a time in human history between those two points in Genesis Revelation where there hasn't been a war going on somewhere at some point in the world? Not one. I mean, Africa right now is in a horrible civil war. There's probably never been peace in the Middle East, I mean, for thousands of years. I mean, we've had world wars that make these wars look like child's play. There's always, they've always had these things. And so every time there's a battle or a fight or a rocket launching or this or that, we go, boy, it's getting really close. But we've been saying that for 2,000 years. It's not a sign of the end times. It was never intended to be. We've always had these things. He is warning them specifically about what is coming with Titus and the Romans. Let's keep reading here. 
For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there shall be earthquakes in divers places, and there shall be famines and troubles. These are, the, not the end, the beginning of sorrows. We've, listen, we've always had natural disasters. Now, we've not always kept the most accurate records of them. We didn't really start keeping good records till about 120 years ago. We've always had hurricanes. We've always had earthquakes. We've always had uh, hail and lightning and fan- we've, all, we've all had these things. And so they're just the beginning. And what, what the Lord is saying is all of these bad things are going to happen. These things have to happen. You can go write it down. They're going to happen and they're going to happen in every generation. There's not been one generation since the time that Jesus said these things until now They didn't have war, rumors of war, earthquakes, hurricanes, hail, lightning, storms. These are the beginning. And they're going to happen. And they happen in every generation. And so we can't can't hang our hat on all that. And even if we could, what's the standard? How many hurricanes do we have to have every year before we know he's getting close? How many earthquakes do we have to have? And in what parts of the world do we have to have to know, hey, it's getting close? See, you see what we do? We take what's happening in our little world and we make it the end of the world. I mean, I think about even like Hurricane Katrina in 2005, one of the worst natural disasters that's ever hit this country. You think people in London and England and China were studying that? They got up and went about their day and think nothing about it. Don't, don't make that mistake. And I can't, I can't accurately, once again, putting you into the mindset of the disciples and the Jews, I, I can't overemphasize how horrible this was. Uh, there's two events in Jewish history that just are head and shoulders above everything else as far as the horrific things they went through. The first one would be the Holocaust. We understand that. Somewhere around 6 million Jews killed, over a million of them women and children. And we, we understand that. That was not that long ago. We have, it's well documented. We understand how awful that was. This right here was on par with that. Titus shows up, slaughters over a million people, destroys the temple, takes over the nation completely, and scatters the Jews all over the world. So yeah, it was, it was awful. And the Lord is preparing the disciples for this because all these things are going to take place within their lifetime. And so Christ's message was not uh, talking about the message to His disciples. It was not that they were going to be delivered, but that they were going to be destroyed. We're having a good time now. We're feeling really good about the message. The encouragement was that despite their whole world falling apart around them, that the gospel was going to go forth and that they would endure till the end. Isn't that wonderful? Uh, Verse 10 says, The gospel must first be published among all nations. But when they shall lead you and deliver you up, take no thought beforehand what you shall speak. Neither do you premeditate, but whatsoever shall be given you in that hour that speak ye. For it is not ye that speak, but the Holy Ghost. Now the brother shall betray the brother to death, and the father the son, and children shall rise up against their parents, and shall cause them to be put to death. And you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. First of all, he says, you know what? 
You're going to go through horrible persecution. You're going to be beaten. You're going to be put before the synagogue. And by the way, these things come true right before our eyes in the book of Acts. We can read about these things coming to pass in the life of the disciples. He said they're going to be killed. But he said the gospel is going to go forth. And he said that you're going to endure to the end. Listen, people that take verse 13 out of context to say that you have to work to, uh, in order to keep your salvation or that you can lose your salvation, they're just taking it so horribly out of context. It's just it's silly. And he's not, he's not even really saying, he's not presenting an ultimatum like if you do this, this will happen. What he's saying is you're going to endure to the end because it is uh, a hallmark of a truly saved person that while we may fall, we may make mistakes, we're not going to fully fall away because the Holy Spirit's within us and he that has begun a good work in us will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Amen. And if you don't believe that, think about the disciples themselves. On crucifixion day, you couldn't find them. They were running scared. Jesus was cursing, even denying that he knew the Lord, and yet... After they saw the resurrected Christ, when they finally got it, you could have done anything to them. They were not going to shut up. In fact, all of them died except for John, and he was exiled to the island of Patmos. In fact, we find in the the end of the book of John, Jesus actually tells Peter how he's going to die. He tells him that he's going to be crucified upside down, and people are going to drag his body away. What's funny is... This is a side note, but it's hilarious. Peter and John standing there, and when Jesus tells that to Peter, Peter looks at John and says, But Jesus, what about him? What are you going to do to him? Jesus basically says, That's none of your business. I'll take care of that. But what if you, I mean, honestly, what if you knew because you were going to stand up for the gospel and because you were going to be standing for the cause of Christ that you were going to be crucified upside down? That God told you specifically that's how you're going to die. Can you be like, uh, God, is there another door that I can look behind? <laughs> but that's what He did. And he, they remain faithful because the Holy Spirit of God constrains us. And there will be a grace there, friend. None of us can do this in our own power. I'm not about to stand up here and beat my chest and talk about what I wouldn't do and wouldn't do like some people do. I can't stand that. Friend, if you do stand, if I stand... It'll be because of the strength of the grace of God in us and not anything about us. I believe there'll be grace in that time that'll be bigger than our situation. Because, I, I listen, that's not on my bucket. That's not on my to-do list. If it calls for it, I pray that I, I would stand strong. And by the power of Christ, I believe that we can and we will. So we, we see very clearly who Jesus is talking about, what He is talking about, and just some closing thoughts as we try to to come in for a landing with some applications. Uh, The biggest reason that I think the study of the end times has been so abused is because people are looking for their exit. They're looking for their exit. And even in the times of Jesus when this happened, There was all kind of apocalyptic literature that was written about the coming of Messiah, the coming of Christ, uh, wanting to get out of here. And this is one reason why this is so important too. When Jesus talks about, uh, when He warns His disciples about not being deceived by false Christ, 
you know, in our mind, we think about false prophets, false teachers and preachers. And certainly, I guess it could be applied to that. But in the immediate context, he's talking about these military leaders that rose up during this time of turmoil. You can look back in history and name after name after name of these guys when the Romans attacked and when they were fighting... These military leaders rose up. Bar Koba is one of them just off the top of my head. There's plenty of them. And what they did, they tried to raise armies to fight against the Romans. Now, friend, if you're trying to raise armies to fight against the Romans, you need to be pretty convincing. So how do you do that? Hey, I'm the promised Messiah. I'm here to establish the kingdom. Let's fight against the Romans. The power of God is on my side. So you see the connection made in that time? That's what he was warning against. And... And so we, we see this principle take place. We see the, the horrible time. In fact, I, I didn't mention this, but I'll just mention this in passing and I'll get to these closing applications. We talked about how Titus destroyed the temple in AD 70, but I wanted to point out before we move on that in AD 73, the final stronghold at Masada was snuffed out. I've been to Masada. Masada was a mountain, um, almost like a mountain barracks or a mountain stronghold. And they had built it to be almost impenetrable. When they got up there, they made it to know where nobody else could get on the mountain. And the Romans actually built a mound of dirt. Basically, it was like an earth ramp where they finally built their way up. When they finally got to the top of Masada, they found everybody dead. It was a mass suicide. 960 people had taken poison so they wouldn't have to be slaves of Rome. That's how horrible this time was. And... And so I want you to get that picture in mind. Jesus was warning His disciples about these things. And so um, we don't need to get it confused necessarily with our day. But where it can be applied to us, and I want to ask it this way, are you looking to be delivered or are you looking to be destroyed for the gospel's sake? Are you just looking for an escape? And the biggest problem that I have with the way that most people study end times, they're just looking for a way out. They're looking for escape for all their problems. And regardless of what position or label that you wear concerning the end times, things are going to get bad. I hear people talk about a pre-tribulation rapture, like we're going to get out of here before anything bad happens. And man, it's just everything's going to be cool. And listen, we're not going to go through the great tribulation with a capital T. Thank God for that. But if you don't think there's going to be a lot of great tribulation with a small T before that happens, you have deceived yourself. I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, but I believe there's going to be a lot of pre-rapture tribulation. Things are going to get really bad. And to think about it like this, think about a world that is so messed up that it would be looking for help to the point where it would actually welcome a one world leader. You think America's ready for that right now? We're not, it's going there. We're not ready for it yet. We're not ready for that yet. We would laugh at that idea. And so there's a lot of sovereign nations that wouldn't go for that. But what if everybody's starving and killing each other and can't find their next meal and the stock market crashes or there's a horrible disease? Who knows what causes all the situation? But the point is, everybody's going to be looking for help. Our help's going to come from the Lord. And theirs is going to come from the person of Antichrist. And so if you think that the pre-tribulation rapture is a get-out-of-trouble-free card, you have deceived yourself. It's not a get-out-of-trouble card. Things are going to get really bad. 
But friend, I'm not looking for deliverance from my troubles in this life. I'm open to the very real possibility of another world war, a nuclear attack. You know, we haven't had a world war since World War II. Quite possibly because of uh, the invention of nuclear weapons. It changed everything. Friend, if we had a world war now, you talk about destruction on a scale that's never been seen before. Nuclear weapons have made us behave because it scared everybody. But it could happen. I'm perfectly open to that idea. I'm open to the idea that there could be a famine to where even here, even at Walmart, the magical shelves could run out. I'm open to the very real possibility there could be another stock market crash or another pandemic which with a much higher mortality rate than COVID. There's going to be more natural disasters. There very well could be persecution for Christ's sake even in this country. And even if not, people all over the world are dying for Christ's namesake every single day. Why is this possible? And why am I open to the idea they very well could happen? Because these things have always been the norm. They've always been the norm. That's why Jesus Christ said these, these things must needs be. They're going to happen, but the end is not yet. We, we can't, we just can't look at it that way. We're not looking for deliverance from our troubles. It, listen, it will happen. Jesus Christ is coming back. We can rejoice in that. But friend, it needs to be to the point where He's going to have to interrupt our service to Him to come get us. That's the way we need to think about it. All right, guys, you've done enough. Time to come home. It, it shouldn't be that we're... Just waiting around, Lord, come get, I'm ready to get out of here. I want to, I want this trouble to end. It shouldn't be like that. When you think about the end times, do you think of, yay, I'm going to miss trouble? Or do you say, Lord willing, I'm going to endure all things for the gospel's sake? Ultimately, the end is coming for all of us, whether that be in death or whether that be in the rapture. But Jesus Christ and the things that we do for Him, those are the only things that's going to matter. So for you, if the end came today, are you ready? If death came today, are you ready to meet God? Are you ready to face your Creator? Understanding that He's ferociously holy. He has no tolerance for sin. He can't allow one sin into heaven. And He knows every thought, word, and deed you've ever done. Are you ready to meet Him on those grounds? The only way to be ready is to repent and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Throw all your sin upon Jesus Christ. His sacrifice is the only thing that will satisfy the wrath of God on your behalf. God, forgive me a sinner. I put all my sin on Jesus Christ. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. If the end came today, are you ready? Are you saved? If the end came today, if you are saved, are you serving? Will He find you faithful? Because the end is coming. And for every person sitting in here, for all the debates about the end times and eschatology and this label and that title, for all the things that Christians disagree about, I can promise you this. Everybody is closer today than they've ever been. On a personal level, you're closer today than you were yesterday. And if God gives you tomorrow, you're going to be closer tomorrow than you are today. Every breath is a breath less. Every heartbeat is one less heartbeat in this world. Are you ready? Are you saved and are you serving?